You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. bit of a disclaimer before I even pray. I, uh, well, I would not normally start services this way, but this week in preparation, um, I, I have hardly made it through. Without just a fresh awareness of my need for Christ. Conviction is a good thing. It's grace. What we deserve is death. And so my prayer this morning is that God convicts us and that I make it through. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning in your name. There's no question of your goodness. You're such a good God. And we've seen that time and time again in Scripture. We've seen that time and time again in our lives. And as as we reflect on the last part of Acts 4, as great grace was upon them all. That is only because of your goodness. But in the same story and in the same section, we see your severity. That you rightfully punish sin. It's not injustice, it's justice. And so, Lord, this morning, our only plea can be for mercy. And so, I pray that you grant that. Lord, I pray that you help us to walk away from this scripture with a deeper understanding of our need for you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In J.I. Packer's Christian classic, Knowing God, he has a chapter that's called The Goodness and the Severity of God. And if you've never read this book, I encourage you to read this book. And, and what I found the first time that I read Knowing God in the chapter of His goodness and His severity was that I just by default love to want and, and want to just camp out around the goodness of God. But what J.I. Packer points out is that's, that's not really an option for those of us that desire to know the God of the Bible. That He also is severe. He says that Christians are not to dwell on God's goodness alone, nor on His severity alone, but to contemplate both together. You will never understand God if you think only on His goodness, and you will never understand God if you dwell only on His severity. He goes on to say, the certainty that there is no more to be said of God than that he is infinitely forbearing and patient, patient and kind, that certainty is as hard to eradicate as bindweed, which we would say in Alabama, kudzu. 
Everybody wants to hear about God's goodness. And when we once and and when once it has put down roots, Christianity in the true sense of the word simply dies off. For the substance of Christianity is faith in the forgiveness of sins through the redeeming work of Christ on the cross. But listen to what he says, but on the basis of the Santa Claus theology, sins create no problem and atonement becomes needless. God's active favor extends no less to those who disregard His commands than to those who keep them. The idea that God's attitude to me is affected by whether or not I do what He says has no place in the thought of the man on the street and any attempt to show the need for fear in God's presence for trembling at His word gets written off as impossibly old-fashioned. In Romans chapter 11, verse 22, the Apostle Paul says, and there should be a slide behind me, the Apostle Paul says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through the end of the chapter are beautiful. Eden-like. As we reflect on the first church and these first Christians, we've seen a boldness, we've seen the courage, we've seen that they are uh, uh, unified theologically. They all believe in the same direction. They're all moving in the same direction. And it is a beautiful thing. And it's often so beautiful that it's preached by itself. It, it's standalone. But as most of you know, Scripture divisions and verses are not inspired. They're a tool to help us understand and remember where to find scripture. But I think those that made the chapter and verse divisions in Acts 4 towards the beginning of Acts 5 got it wrong. Humbly, I say that. Because I believe that the last part of 4 and the devastation found in the first part of 5 are meant to be together. And I think when we see them together, we have a more realistic understanding of our experience. Because we can just read the last part of four, hear sermons on the last part of four, and walk away going, hey, that sounds great and that sounds good, but like, how do I actually get there? And where we would find ourselves is the temptation that Ananias and Sapphira fall into, and that's to do whatever we have to do, even if it's fake, even if it isn't real, even if it's pseudo-Christianity, to make it look like we're a church or a person or a family or a Christian that looks more like the last part of Acts chapter 4. But the last part of 4, to be fair, is a glorious time. If you would look down with me, we see a few things that stand out. It says, now the full number, this is in the thousands of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 33, and says, and with great, this Greek word is where we get our English word mega. So it's mega power. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and mega grace. Great grace was upon them all. So much so, verse 34 says that there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And it was laid at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, three quick observations of the state of the church at the end of chapter 4. The first thing we see is they were of one heart and of one soul or of one mind. Now this speaks to a oneness in emotion, but it also speaks to that they were one in the way that they thought, in the way that they believed. So it's not just this emotional oneness. They don't just actually love each other. They aren't just actually committed to each other, and, and it's genuine But there's a oneness in theology. So the way that they think about God and the way that they approach God and the way that they communicate and articulate who God is to others and to one another is the same. And brothers and sisters and friends, this is basic Christian unity. This is basic Christian unity. This isn't organizational franchise. You go into a Starbucks in Tuscaloosa, It's just like going to a Starbucks in New York City. Well, pretty much. But you catch my drift. This isn't a uniformity. This isn't everybody look the same, talk the same, smell the same, and on and on and on. Basic Christian unity has tremendous diversity. And so it's not about everybody being the same. That's one of the beauties of the gospel. Basic Christian unity and community looks like many people that look different, talk different, walk different, brought together under the unity of the person and work of Christ and have oneness in mind of who He is. That's basic, fundamental Christian unity. And that's what they had. Diversity with a oneness around who God is and who we are in Him. The second thing that we see is that they shared everything they had. Now, now, just for clarity, some of you might freak out a little bit here um, on one extreme or the other. My, my ultra-conservative friends might go, this is communism or socialism. My ultra-liberal friends might go, amen. Look, th- this was a voluntary sharing. This wasn't mandated. This wasn't law. This sharing and this generosity is a direct reflection of the first point, that they were of one heart and soul and mind. And so they understood all that God had given them. And one of the most evident fruits of God's work in us, and I want to say this personally, one one of the most evident fruits of God's work in you is generosity. Again, that's not a law, but it's fruit of someone who understands all that they've been given from the Lord. And so we have a God who is infinitely generous. And we've benefited from the generosity of God, even when we didn't deserve it. And so a fruit that comes out of someone who understands the gospel and all that God has freely given them, it's generosity. It's a fruit. Look at verse 36. There's even an, an example. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. We're going to hear Barnabas's name a lot. Luke loves Barnabas. In fact, everybody we're going to see loves Barnabas. To know Barnabas is to be encouraged by Barnabas. To know Barnabas is to be encouraged in the gospel. 
that this fella just, just seems to be, and of course he's a sinner in need of the grace of God too. But what we see of Barnabas is we see a guy that's just really consistent. Like he's consistently generous. He's consistently concerned with the well-being of other people. And he's faithful to the Lord. And he's faithful to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and so this, this is Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. A Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So pretty clear cut. Again, th this wasn't mandatory. And there's probably a lot of cultural and contextual reasons that they're selling their stuff. They didn't expect to be in Jerusalem long. I, I, I don't know that for sure. It doesn't explicitly say that. We do know that they are on their way out and they know the persecution is heavy. So maybe that was a motivation of why they're all selling their land. This isn't law. This isn't to say you're super spiritual if you go sell everything and give it away. That, that doesn't earn us any favor or standing before the Lord. But in this context, what Barnabas felt called to do from God for the people that were around him was to sell his property and give it away. And so a real-life example for all of them was that they were sharing everything that they had. And, and, and friends, I, I know you know this, but depending on the context, it can be less expensive or more expensive, but ministry costs. It cost. In God's design from Acts chapter 4 on to support financially His body and His people to continue the advance of the gospel is in fact His people. We're not to have to go outside these walls to try to raise funds or gain funds to support the ministry and work of what God has called us to. That's a Christian responsibility that we un while we understand the generosity of God, we in turn want to be generous so that the gospel can continue to advance. And it, that's the most basic, clear principle of giving that you can hear. It's not rocket science. It's not about amounts. It's about what has God called us to together to advance the gospel dependent on where we are in this world. It's going to cost more or less, but it's still going to cost. So they shared everything they had. They were of one heart and soul. They shared everything they had. Third, that they testified, and this is what the whole thing is about from Acts chapter 2 on. They testified to the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point of the Great Commission. His proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you remove that from this equation, you have a club. You got some homeboys and homegirls hanging out. The gospel is the mission. It's the message that is meant to be brought forth all the way to the ends of the earth. And, and, and scripture says, great grace was upon them all. Again, I, I like to say mega grace. Mega grace was upon them all. And, and all of this would be credited to, if we could talk to them, and we understand it this way, to the goodness of God. The Lord had created this new fellowship. The Lord had birthed the church, and by His providence, and by His protection, and by His power, the mission would be carried out. The Lord loves His bride, and the Lord will protect them at all costs. He, he will, and we've already seen it, and we're going to continue to see it. He will protect them from outside threats, 
but he'll also protect them from inside threats. And you'll notice that chapter 5 starts with a conjunction. Now, some of you may be like me and just barely be above a middle school maturity. But this is a big but. Because it connects, conjoins. That's what conjunctions, that's what they do. This isn't like, and five years later, this comes about. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And before we move on, I want to just just give some commentary here. I've already mentioned that everyone loved Barnabas. And it's highly likely that because of Barnabas's generosity, and again, we don't have any inclination that Barnabas is doing this for the show, okay? It's not for the show. It's not so people notice him. It's not to get a pat on the back. But when you have this kind of generosity and you bring it to the apostles' feet, you see the difference then and now is, is that there doesn't seem to be real like secrecy around who gives what. How about if we had that rolling on the screens Sunday after Sunday? But, but they knew, and so they knew, and everybody knew, and just because they knew, that's the nature of it, is everybody knows. And so surely Barnabas got some attention. Barnabas got some thank yous. Barnabas was praised among them as, hey, hey, this is the model. Like, like I don't know if we can be just like Barnabas, but man, look at the generosity. And that's really the point. They look at Barnabas and go, man, the faith, the generosity. Well, who doesn't like to be well thought of? And the craving of human praise, the desire to be well thought of, poised Ananias and his wife Sapphira to lie. Now, they were wanting to appear more spiritual than they actually were. Now, we're going to break this down here in just a second as far as some more details around this sin. But I think typically this sin is viewed and understood more with the heart of greed. I don't, I don't think so. I think they did love money, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But I think what they really wanted was praise. They wanted to look one way and not actually have to be that way. Look at Peter's response in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, and, and obviously the, there's not much given here. Uh, the, the only thing we can assume is that God gave Peter some discernment. We don't know if he, if he was suspicious. I have, I have no idea. So, so use your sanctified imagination to just go wherever that leads you. But however he came to know, he, he came to know, and, and he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why? That's what I hear him saying. And I don't know his tone, but I mean, just passionately, why? Like, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Why? 
things are going great. You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter mentions Satan's influence. That's a thing. That, that's real. Satan wants to kill, and he wants to steal, and he wants to destroy. And if we don't take that personally, just as personally as we would if another human came up in our face and said they wanted to kill, steal, and destroy everything that meant something to us, they'd, they'd have a fight on their hands. We have to take this just as serious that Satan is real. Now, there's a really good chance that you personally have never been dealt with by Satan himself because he's not omnipresent like God. But the fact that he's real and the fact that he has an army is clearly taught in Scripture and there is an influence. And so Satan wants to destroy from the outside. Now Satan comes and tries to influence from the inside of the congregation to destroy. So so we do have Satan's influence. Secondly, he says, you lied to God. Not only to me, if I'm Peter. Not only to the church. But you've lied to God. And the way that you've done that is you didn't give as much as you said you gave. But notice what he says also. He had the right to this property and this money. That's why I made the point at the beginning that this this wasn't mandatory. And that's why Peter's going, why? Why would you do this? You didn't have to sell it. Nobody's keeping score, man. Man. Like, why did you do this? This isn't a law. This is as God leads your heart. God led Barnabas's heart. Like, why would you do this? This was so unnecessary. And of course, I'm elaborating. But I'm just trying to think about like, what that conversation would be like amongst this congregation with us going, man, we love you already. You're welcome in this fellowship. Why? Why would you do this? How could you do this? And as Ananias contemplates these questions, the Lord, in a divine act of judgment, takes his physical life. Verse 5. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Now we know that Dr. Luke, like the physician Luke wrote this, and, and I, again, I, I just, y'all understand, I think more about how I think now. I, I, my imagination starts taking off, and I'm like, I'm, Dr. Luke might, probably an aneurysm. Hey, he was a little overweight. He loved bacon. Well, probably not Jews, but you know what I'm saying. Like, like, he, like, like Dr. Luke could have given some commentary, like, 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 like you would expect. Hey, this is a medical emergency, Doc. What happened? Well, the phrase that he uses leaves no question what happened. Because everywhere else this phrase is used in Scripture, and, and this isn't the only time that somebody is divinely taken out by the Lord, this phrase is used. And the phrase is, he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. You think. Can you imagine us explaining to the Big Sandy Volunteer, Inglewood Volunteer Fire Department, 
We're taking up an offering. Husband and wife drop dead. And they come in here and they're interviewing like, okay, Pastor Hank, like, what happened? You ever read Acts? No, no, but seriously, like, can you imagine, like, what this was like? Because they, they knew, Peter knew, they, they, they understood what was going down. Well, look at verses 7 through 10, because the story's not over. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. So, so she is unaware, she doesn't even know that her husband has deceased. Verse 8, and Peter said to her, and, and brothers and sisters and friends, I want us to see this as an opportunity. This is an act of grace. This, this is a moment of mercy. When Peter says, tell me, because he, he knows, because Ananias already told him, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, just as planned, just as practiced, yes, of course, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it? Again, he's still going, what? How is it? that you have agreed together. Look, and just a side note, one of the most beautiful things about Christian marriages is we keep one another out of the ditches. Right? And so Christian husband and Christian wife, see that as part of our responsibility. We have a responsibility to care for our spouse's spiritual well-being. And when we know it's sin, it's sin. And we can lovingly and in a way of honor and respect, address that sin within the context of marriage, but this didn't happen to the first Bonnie and Clyde, if you will. How is it you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet, and there's our phrase again, and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church. By the way, I don't have time to elaborate, but we will later. This is the first time that word's used. Church. And upon all who heard these things. So, so she lies too. And, and Luke already let us know that she was compliant, and so Peter gives her an opportunity, and, and she lies too, and then she received the same judgment as her husband. And, and, and so I think it's important for us to pause here and, and to see the contrast. So you, you see the contrast between Barnabas and Ananias, right? That, that's what the writer wants us to see. That Inspired by the Holy Spirit, we're supposed to see that. We're supposed to see Barnabas and go, wow, what genuine, authentic gospel generosity, and then we're supposed to see Ananias and Sapphira as the opposite of that. Now, what happened with them? What happened? What's going through their minds? What's, what's happened? First, observation is this, is they, they loved themselves, not others. They wanted to look like they loved others. They might have even had a desire to love others. But they loved themselves more. And, and I came across a quote from an author named Oz Guinness. And I think it's fitting. And it helps us apply this. He says, the age of the internet, it is said, is the age of the self and the selfie. 
The world is full of people, full of themselves. In such an age, I post, therefore, I am. Maybe more than any, at any point in human history, this particular sin and this particular desire of our flesh to appear a certain way and the exposure of our deep, deep, deep love for ourselves above others has been exposed. But that was part of their problem. They love themselves and not others. Second, they love their money. They made the sale. Maybe you've done this. They looked at the cash and they just couldn't bear the thought of giving it all away. I, I, like, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Like, maybe they started with good intentions. I don't know at what point they, you know, made this plan to lie. But maybe they started with good intentions. They sold it and they're like, oh, goodness, little seller's remorse, right? Seller's remorse. And they get back home and they're looking at all this cash and they're like, hey, I know we already said that we were going to give this away. I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can do it. And maybe Sapphira's like, you know what, babe, I don't think I can do it either. But what do we do? Like, this is the Christian thing at this point. Sell your land, give it away. They couldn't bear the thought of giving it all away, so they lied. They kept back some and went on with the message that they'd sold it all. So, so they had a deep love for themselves. They loved their money. Third, they wanted to look more generous than they really were. They didn't want to be generous. All right, listen, guys. They didn't want to be generous. They wanted to look generous. They wanted the church and the apostles to think that they were like Barnabas, perhaps. Fourth, they loved the praise of man. They not only loved money, they not only had a sinful love for themselves, but they loved the praise of man. In John 12, 42 and 43, it says, Nevertheless, many, of, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why? What is it? What's the problem? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Ananias and Sapphira loved the praise of man. Then the obvious, they lied. They lied. And if, if, we, if we love possessions and love the praise of man, our love for truth will dissolve into deception and fraud. We have to be warned. If you struggle with an, an a sinful love for yourself, a sinful love for money, a sinful love for the praise and gratitude that comes from others, you will compromise the truth. And it will turn into deception and fraud. In fact, it's really where we get our word hypocrisy. Lastly, they tested the Spirit. And, and, and this was an interesting thought for me. Because to test the Spirit, it means to indulge in some sin with the full expectation that you're going to get away with it. Again, I, 
there's so much to think about there, but, but that's what it means to test the spirit. Like, how far can I go, right? Some of you, all of us have been teenagers. Some of you are currently teenagers. And, and that's really the question around dating and, you know, sexuality. Like, just how far can we go before it turns into a sin? Well, it's that mindset that he's speaking to that they tested the spirit. How far can we go before, I guess you could say now, just to fit the context, God kills us? Well, they went too far. But that's what it means to test the Spirit. They loved themselves. They loved their money. They wanted to look more generous than they were. They loved the praise of man. They lied. They tested the Spirit. And to be clear, as far as we know, Ananias and Sapphira were believing people. I I don't think this means that they were sentenced to hell even though they deserved it. There is no indication, no indication that they had rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were a part of the fellowship. Now, I I, I can't tell you for sure, but I I just want to be fair and clear to the text. This doesn't necessarily mean that they're sentenced to hell, but they did receive an earthly judgment for their sin. In fact, I wonder if Peter had this in mind when he wrote in 1 Peter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Because he'd seen that firsthand. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so at the conclusion of this section that began with mega grace, now there's mega fear. And I think it would serve us well to contemplate that. The grace of God, which we all love to hear and celebrate, and rightfully so, directly beside the fear of God. The goodness of God that we all love and sing about, God is so good, let's keep singing it, but you don't really hear many songs, God is so severe. It just doesn't have the same ring to it. But we see the goodness of God, and right next to it, we see the severity of God. And so I I see this as a merciful warning to us. Ananias and Sapphira didn't get mercy. They they got divine justice. They, They lied to God and tested the Spirit thinking that they could get away with it. And God had already made clear, they had been taught it, they knew it, that the wages of sin was death. And I see this as a warning to show us that God Himself, God Himself is watching over His church. This is a critical point in the life of the church. Because the nature of sin, this is what it does. And if you're toying with sin today, if there's hidden sin in your life, please understand, please understand that if you feel conviction this morning, that is mercy. Ananias and Sapphira, as far as we can tell, never felt conviction. God killed them. But, but if there's sin in your life, that, that secret, that secret sin, and you think nobody's ever going to know about it, and you're testing the Spirit, essentially, how far can I go? Always know that sin wants to keep on trucking. It, it wants to keep going, and it wants to destroy. And, and there's never a moment that you're ever just playing with sin. You're never toying with something that can kill you. It's always a threat. At its inception, in the middle, and Heaven forbid, Lord, have mercy on us and don't let us get to the end of it.
the Lord stops the spread of sin by removing the threat. Really, the worst thing that God could have done was leave Ananias and Sapphira as a part of the congregation. And I know for us it's so hard in our sort of just emotional, and I don't mean any disrespect, kind of snowflakey like culture that we live in. This just seems so severe, but God is serious. He's serious about holiness. He's serious about the purity of His church. And he saw the best way to show grace to his congregation and arguably to Ananias and Sapphira was to take them out. To take them out before it was too late. To take them out before this sin just spread and the church was built on a facade. Because there's a good chance Ananias and Sapphira with this kind of move would have found themselves in high ranks in the first church. And God himself, because he's committed to protect the church from the outside, and he's committed to protect the church from the inside. God himself shut it down. He, he responded in severity to keep the damage at a minimum. Closing thought. I think a testimony to the mercy of God is that we're surprised when he kills people because it's not the norm and it should be it should be we have to feel that we have to understand that God has plainly in his word said the wages of sin is death and every single one of us at this point are breathing and it's not just a physical death it's infinitely worse than that the worst thing that could happen to Ananias and Sapphira is not a physical death, assuming they were believers. The worst thing that could happen to Ananias and Sapphira is that they continued on their own way for their own glory and for their own good, and they had to stand before this holy God, not together, alone. Alone. And give an account for their lives. Every single one of us will stand before God alone. And if we don't come to him solely on the basis of the mercy that he has freely offered in the work of his son Jesus Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection, then we too will be ultimately damned and judged. And really the best place to see the goodness and severity of God intersect is at the cross of Christ. We can't imagine what that looked like. We wear it on our necklaces and on our earrings and on our t-shirts, but it was an instrument of torture. It was the place that Jesus went to die. It was the place that Jesus wasn't served an injustice in the sense of what he received from the Father. It was divine justice because in the plan of the gospel from before time, he planned to come as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world and to take the death that I deserve and that you deserve. Jesus died in our place so that we won't ever, ever taste death. So, so if you're feeling conviction this morning, don't run from it. Don't run from it. Please don't run from it. Th this isn't meant to send you away in despair. This is meant to draw you in. This is meant to show us that we have an infinitely holy God and we cannot, we cannot 
deny that. We lose the gospel if we deny that, that he is so holy that he has to punish and judge sin, and he will. But this same God has made a way, and he invites you to come to him. You don't have to die. You don't have to die. You can be saved. The only way to be saved is to put your faith and trust in Jesus. I have no doubt in my mind because of how wrecked I've been this week. Don't think about your spouse or your kids and how bad they need to hear this. Think about you. We all have a little Ananias and Sapphira in us. We all want to be thought of one way and know we're really not that way. And it's a nasty sin. It's gross sin. Don't press in. Don't keep lying. Stop lying. Repent and turn to Jesus who welcomes broken, messed up sinners. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.